Let me start by asking a question. How many of you have ever been to the doctor? <laughs> exactly, exactly, that's it. That's a silly question, isn't it? I mean, that's why you're laughing, because we all go to the doctor. We don't feel well. We want to go to the doctor, get some medicine, feel better. So, silly question. Now, let me ask you a second question. How many of you have ever been to a mental health counselor? First off, my hand's up, because I've been. But it's interesting watching your reaction to this question. It's a lot different than the last one. A lot more hesitation. Not so sure. Should I admit that here? Is that okay to say? I know some of you raised your hand, no problem. Here I am, yes, absolutely, Ben. But others of us, not so sure. Maybe it's because at times we, we feel like when we come to church, it's for people who have it all together. It's for people who... who there I say, perfect people. And maybe there are some churches that, that, that that's the case, that, that it's for church, churches for perfect people. Let me tell you right now, absolutely, my hand's in the air. This church is not one of those. This church is not for perfect people. Church is for people that have issues, that have hurts, that have things that sometimes we just need help with. And so going to the doctor, going to a counselor, really... One of those things. Interesting enough about the word counselor, though, when you when you look in Scripture, the word counselor in the Bible is used as a word to describe the Holy Spirit and Jesus at times. That that God knew sometimes we needed a counselor. In fact, one of the titles for Jesus that we often quote around Christmas, that Isaiah passage, he is, that's it, wonderful counselor. Jesus functions, Jesus is for us a counselor sometimes. That's very important. That's something we need. God gave us that because it was necessary and needed in our lives. So it's interesting that when we ask that question, you know, maybe sometimes we shy away from it. Now, like I said, I've, I've been to a therapist. I've been to, to a counselor. And, you know, I don't know what happens, what you expect to happen when you go. But one of the things that doesn't happen is you don't go in and say, here's my problem. And in 10 minutes, they say, here's the solution. Go fix it. I mean, maybe Dr. Phil does it that way, but most counselors don't. In fact, one of the techniques most counselors use is they ask questions. They ask a question to get you to open up so they can listen and go from there. And when you think about Jesus, sometimes he did that very thing. Often when he would interact with people, he didn't give the answer as much as he asked a question. And I want to look today at a passage of scripture, and maybe over the next couple of weeks as well, at some times where Jesus asked questions to help get to the bottom of what was going on. The passage we're going to look at today is in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start a little later about verse 27, and, and when we get there, the, the verses will be up on the screen. Or if you brought your Bible, feel free to turn there. We actually have some Bibles underneath uh, the seats there on the racks. Grab one of those. Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to be. You can turn there. Uh, Matthew 9 is an interesting passage. The context, a little bit of what's going on in this passage, just before the verses we'll read, um, Jesus had healed, actually healed a little, not even a strong enough word, Jesus had brought someone back to life. Jesus had resurrected a girl. Pretty impressive stuff. And like you would expect when he did these miraculous things, it got the attention of the people. They they crowded around him. They followed him. They expected things from him. And we'll see that. And in fact, what we see t- this morning in this passage, beginning we're going to be in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 9, is just that very thing happening. Uh, let's, let's just read verse 27. Matthew 9, 27 starts as I says, As Jesus went on from there, 
two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, right off the bat, I want you to notice that call out to them is, is using a messianic title, son of David. One of the promises of the Old Testament is that uh, someone in the line of David would sit on the throne forever, and, and these men are recognizing in Jesus something about his lineage from David and kind of ascribing a messianic title to him. But, but more than the title they used, I want you to notice what they were doing. Uh, scripture here says they were calling out. But the Greek word tells us uh, a little bit more about what they're doing. In fact, the Greek word is the word krazo. They were calling out, and the Greek word there is krazo. Krazo is a word that has a meaning of some intensity to it. It has the idea that that they're not just calling out gently or calling him, you know, hoping he notices, but a, a desperation almost. And when we see that from some other places that word is used. One place where that word is used, uh, that word crazo is used, is for the disciples when they see Jesus walking on water. You know, they're out in the boat, Jesus was on land, and in the, in the night he comes out walking on the water to them. And they see him and they think he's a ghost. And the word crazo shows up there for what they did when they saw, they called out because they thought Jesus was a ghost. You can picture what it means to call out in that context. Or another place, maybe even more helpful, and, and instructive to us is when the word crazo is used for how a woman in labor calls out. Now we know what that's about. If you've ever been, if you've ever been in the delivery room with your wives, uh, you know she calls out. There's there's a, an intensity, there's a desperation out, out of the pain of that process. Um, and so that's the word that's used here. These men following Jesus were calling out with. With using the word crazy, there was intensity, there was desperation in their their voice. Um, it goes on, next verse, verse 28 tells us this. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them. And here's our question. Jesus, as the counselor, asked these blind men a question. Here's what he asked them. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? Great question great question. Well, how do they answer? They replied, yes, Lord. Now we've come from son of David to Lord. They're, they're taking it to the next level. Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. According to your faith, not according to your church attendance, or not according to how much money you put in the plate, or not according to your reputation or, or your works. According to your faith, it will be done to you. Now, now before we get into kind of the rest of the message and we talk more about it, I just want to stop right here and say this is an important verse, but it's the kind of idea that has been misused in Christianity. Because there are those that have taken this kind of phrase, according to your faith, it will be done to you, and made it read wrongly. They've said things like, well, if you just had more faith, God would heal you. You just don't have enough faith. If you just had a little more faith, God would take care of that problem. God would take care of that illness. I don't think that's what's at work here at all. See, the idea there is if if you pray hard enough or long enough or believe enough, uh, or you pray the right words, the right formula, maybe certain things that you have to say that God rewards. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that, that God is ever obligated to us if we have enough faith, if we do the right things. God's never obligated to us. But nonetheless, 
When we look in Scripture, there is something about faith in the Bible that Jesus notices. In fact, there's two things that amaze Jesus. On the one hand, one thing that amazes Jesus is great faith. He says to the centurion, No greater faith have I even seen in Israel, to this Roman from a pagan background. And the other thing that amazes Jesus is lack of faith. He's amazed, it says a couple of times, at their lack of faith. So faith is, is huge in the economy of the New Testament, the economy of the Bible and what God expects and what God desires. And here it is that issue of faith that Jesus says caused him to act on their behalf and to heal them and to take away their blindness. So, so I want to look today at what, what is that faith? What does that kind of faith look at? Can we learn anything from these blind men that demonstrates the kind of faith that Jesus notices, and in this case, honored. And there are several things. One of the things I want you to notice here in this passage is that that they had faith before Jesus healed them. It's easy to have faith after the fact. It's easy to have faith, you know, after it's done, after the, the, the deed is accomplished, to say, oh yeah, I had faith all along. Well, it's easy to say that. But their faith here is before Jesus ever does anything for him. In fact, the definition of faith found in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Hebrews 11, verse 1 tells us, Now faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Faith happens before the act of God happens. Faith is kind of a prior belief. Now, I know, by the way, you know, in saying that, if I were to ask today, how many of you believe God can, da, 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 maybe even ask the question Jesus asked, do you really believe I can do that? Most of us, because we're sitting in church and because we might have a Christian back, say, yes, I believe. God can do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. Let me ask you another question. What have you prayed for for the last seven days consistently and fervently of God. What have you prayed? Just seven days, just a week, looking back on the last seven days of what you pray for. Is there any one thing that you've consistently, earnestly, fervently called out to God for? Why do I ask that? Well, for this reason, I think what we pray about and for reveals what we really believe about God. The things that we pray for shows what we believe truly God can do. I can illustrate this in a lot of ways. One way I'll do it is is to say, sometimes when we speak, what we say about prayer betrays we don't believe much in the God we pray to. Because we say things like, well, all we can do now is pray. That's all we can do. All we can do now is pray. And that implies, boy, I wish I could do something else. I wish I could do more. I wish I could do anything else. But all I can do is pray. What does that say about what you believe about God? If Jesus were to ask you, do you believe I can do this? And he would say, all I can do is pray. It's not a very good answer, is it? That's not the answer these men gave. They said, yes, Lord. Um, you know, it's true. If we were to be honest and answer the question for the last seven days, what what are the things you've prayed for consistently? I bet I know the number one thing you've prayed for. Dear God, I pray that you bless this food to our bodies and our bodies to your service. Amen. 
heard that prayer a lot, said that prayer a lot. If we're honest, probably what we've prayed for most consistently for the last seven days is God would bless our food. Now, nothing wrong with that. Nothing bad about that. But nothing much to it. I mean, we live in one of the wealthiest countries on the face of the earth. My guess is, for most of us, the nutritional value of our food is not a problem. In fact, unless you're eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos three meals a day, seven days a week, that's not asking God to do a whole lot. But that's what we pray. Another thing we might pray, and a lot of times we do in church in church world and prayer meetings, we pray for safety as we travel or in, in, in uh, church speak, traveling mercies. You know, I'm going to take a trip and, and I would ask for you all to pray for me as I travel. Now, I know bad things can happen. I know horrible things happen when people travel. Tragic things happen even. But overall, it's not asking God for much because most of the time, if we look at the number of cars that are on the highway and planes that are in the sky, the number of tragic incidents are surprisingly small. But when it happens to you, it's the world. I get that. So don't hear me lessen the reality that tragic things happen and have happened to people here in this room. I get that. But overall, I'm saying what we pray about reveals what we really believe about God. The size of our request shows the strength of our faith. And have you prayed in the last seven days for anything that's the equivalent of blind men saying to Jesus, make us see? Yes, Lord, we believe you can do it. If, if God were to ask you, like Jesus asked these men, do you really believe I can do this? Would your answer be yes? Or would it be something much less? See, they had a faith that believed before anything had been done for them, before anything happened. They had a faith that believed. But, but I want you to notice something else about these men. Something you might have missed when we read through this passage. You see, as we read through... Um, I think you might have missed the fact that these men had some determination, had some persistence in their pursuit of Jesus. See, it says in verse 27, they're calling out. We call it crazy calling out on the side of the road. And the reason, maybe one, there's, there's that volume and intensity is because when you're like Jesus and you perform miracles, a lot of people want to be near you. A lot of people want to come around and, and have you do things for them. You attract a crowd. And often in the Bible, when we read about Jesus and he goes from place to place, there's big crowds following or crowding around him. And so these men were part of that big crowd. But if you notice, after they call out that urgent, crazy, crazo kind of calling out, it says in the next verse, verse 28, where does it find Jesus? It says that when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. It sounds to me like when I read that, Jesus might not have acknowledged them on the road. That as he's going along and the crowds are pressing in and these men are calling out to him, trying to get his attention, these two blind men, it's almost like he never acknowledged their call, like he never said, hold on, I'll come back, let me talk to you, follow me. He just goes indoors. He just ignores them and goes on. And think about what it took for these blind men to get to Jesus. It wasn't easy. They're blind. They're on the road, surrounded by a crowd, and they can't see Jesus. They can go by the commotion where he may be and discern the general movement of the crowd, but they don't know where he's going. They can't see the house he's going to. They can't see the direction he goes. Somehow they had to take it upon themselves with their physical limitations to be 
doggedly persistent to find out where did Jesus go? What place did he go inside of? And then they had to find a way to somehow gain access to that place. After they found it, how could they convince whoever was there to let them in, to have an audience with Jesus? But they did that somehow. They would not be deterred from pursuing and finding Jesus, even when he went indoors. Even though they couldn't see where he was going or where he went, they came after him. They were persistent in prayer. And that's just what Scripture tells us to do. The Bible says often, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, for instance, says this, Be persistent in prayer and keep alert as you pray, giving thanks to God. Philippians 4, 6 is another place. It's one that a lot of us know. It says, Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Be persistent in prayer, giving thanks. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, give thanks. That There's that encouragement for us to go after Jesus in prayer, to be persistent, not to ask once, and, oh, I guess he wasn't listening, or I guess he's too busy, never mind, all we can do is pray. No, it's, I'm coming after him no matter what it takes, no matter how far I have to go. That's what these men had. In fact, Jesus himself tells, tells a parable, and some people call it the parable of the unjust judge, and other people call it the parable of persistent widow. It's the same stories in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells the story about, about a widow uh, who basically wanted justice. And the judge wouldn't give her a hearing. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't let her come in. He wouldn't hear her case. He wouldn't give her the verdict she needed. Um, and the widow kept after him and after him and after him. Wouldn't leave him alone. Everywhere he went, there she was, asking, Give me justice. Grant me justice. Grant me justice. And and the unjust judge says to himself, You know, if I don't do what she asks, she's not going away. And she's going to keep bothering me. She's going to wear me out. And then, and Jesus tells that parable to make the point about God in verse 7. This is how he, he takes that parable and, and, and applies it to us. He says, even he, meaning the unjust judge, rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who plead with him day and night? Surely God will hear and answer those who just persist in prayer. If the unjust judge rewarded persistence of this widow. How much more will a just and righteous and holy God honor the persistence of his people in prayer? They just keep on and keep on after him. And that's what these blind men did. Yes, they, they believed before they could see. They trusted before God had done anything for them that he would do it. That was their faith. And their faith was persistent. It wouldn't be deterred. It wouldn't be pushed aside. They kept after Jesus. They kept on coming, seeking him out, and, and coming after him. But but I want you to notice one other thing about their faith. The kind of faith that Jesus says, according to that kind of faith, I, I notice, I'm amazed, I honor it. It's a faith that keeps working even when it doesn't make sense. A faith that keeps acting, that keeps moving even when it doesn't make sense. You know, we're talking about Faith, and often a lot of people think of faith as just some blind hope, just some desire that things will get better. Faith is just wishful thinking. But that's not what biblical faith is. Faith isn't, on the one hand, believing in facts, intellectual assent to something. You know, I have faith in Jesus because I believe he was born 
at Christmas and died on Good Friday and rose on Easter. That's not faith, biblically speaking. Because you don't believe in Jesus if that's your faith anymore than you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States and didn't cut down or cut down the cherry tree and didn't lie about it. Because I believe certain things from history and tales and I've memorized some facts. No, faith isn't about facts. It's also not about some empty wish or hope, some vague nebulous, I hope this works out. No, faith more often is a demonstration that results in action. In fact, uh, Jesus' brother James writes about the relationship between faith and action or faith and works. And, and he uses one example of Abraham. In James chapter 2, he talks about Abraham, particularly Abraham as he sacrifices or is going to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. James uses that story as a backdrop to demonstrate faith. Now, let me be clear. The faith that we're talking about that goes hand in hand with action or works, we might say, is not saving faith. This isn't what we're talking about. We know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast about it. Ephesians one of those Baptist verses, one of those bedrock verses. Salvation has nothing to do with our action, our work. It's all about what God has done for us. But what we're talking about is as people of God seeking to follow Jesus, our faith should be demonstrated by the way we act. And Abraham is one of the examples James uses for that. He uses the, the instance where God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. Crazy request. I'm not even going to pretend to try to explain why God would even ask that. That's another discussion for another day, just to say that's a crazy thing. But what does Abraham do? What God tells him to do. He gets together the supplies he needs, the wood, the fire, the knife, his son, and he heads on up a mountain. He's going to head up that mountain and do what God tells him to do. Think about how tough that must have been. This is the son of promise. This is the only son he and his wife Sarah had had. This was the son God said, Through him I will bless all peoples of the earth. And if you remember, Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100 when Isaac was conceived. Think about that. Could you imagine ladies pregnant at 90 years old that is just oh, unfathomable but that's what they that's what happened for Sarah Abraham 100 going to be a father at over 100 years old and God kept his promise now we know also that before that time Abraham wavered in his faith he didn't believe God would keep that promise and so he took matters into his own hands and had another child with another woman uh, Hagar his his wife's uh, servant made maidservant, and that was Ishmael. So Abraham had learned firsthand uh, faith. You can't rush God. You can't go off the path with God. When God promises, you have to trust him to do it his way. And so when God says to Abraham, now take your son, Abraham's learned that lesson, and he's going to act in faith by getting the things together and heading up the mountain. And as he takes his son up the mountain, they get to the place, he builds the altar, and somehow his son is bound and on the altar and Abraham is ready to take the knife and to sacrifice according to the instruction of God his son it's remarkable 
It's remarkable he was willing to do that. It's unfathomable to me that he would even try that, but he was willing. His faith was demonstrated. In fact, James puts it this way in James 2.22. He says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. The faith and the action worked together. That, that what he said he believed about God was demonstrated by how he acted. And what did he believe about God? Well, what he believed about God was that somehow, even if this son, this only son that he had, the only one Sarah had ever been able to conceive, was killed, that God could still keep his promise. Maybe it would mean Sarah getting pregnant again. And think about that. It's Isaac's probably a teenager. We're talking 100 Abraham's 110, 115 years old. Sarah's over 100 now. Could you imagine going through a pregnancy, chasing around a toddler at 100 plus years old? That's what they were facing. But Abraham believed that that's what it's going to do. It's going to do. It's going to take that. or, Or maybe better yet, Scripture indicates Abraham believed that God could raise that son from the dead. If he did what God said, sacrificed his son, that somehow God might even raise Isaac from the dead. Of course, you know what happened as Abraham was ready to obey, to act. His faith and his actions working together. His faith made complete by what he did. God intervened and said, listen, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And he provided a ram. And there we get the story and a name for God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. On the mountain of the God, it will be provided. Abraham learned that lesson. He demonstrated his faith. And these blind men demonstrated their faith. They wouldn't be denied. They pursued and they were willing to act and move and go forward pursuing and trusting that Jesus could do. And when Jesus asked him, do you believe I am able to do this? Yes. Right there, ready. Now, let me go back to something and make sure and I think we need to end with this thought. Because as much as it says according to their faith it was done to them, we need to understand this faith Yes, it is a faith beforehand, and it is a faith that persists, and it's a faith that acts. But there are no guarantees. God is not a genie in the lamp that our faith somehow rubs, and he magically appears and grants us three wishes. God is never under any obligation to do what we ask, no matter how much we believe that he can or will. I think that's best illustrated by the story of three young men by the names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You all know who they are, right? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you all know who they are. Actually, I'm sure most of you probably know who they are, you just don't know them by those names. You probably know them more popularly by the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, those names are their Babylonian names. They were born Hebrews in Israel before the Babylonian captivity came and they were carted off to Babylon. And in Israel, they were named after Yahweh or Elohim, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, all the name of God somewhere in their names. But after they went to Babylon, they were given Babylonian names to show allegiance to Babylonian gods, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But even though their names might have changed, their faith wasn't deterred. Their faith wasn't changed because there was a moment where they were forced to make a choice. The king had made a statue, and he decreed that when the music played, everybody in Babylon would bow down and worship the statue, the image that he made of himself. And the music played, and everybody did except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
they wouldn't bow. So they were brought before the king. They were told, listen, I'm going to give you one more chance. One more chance, the king told them. I'm going to give you this chance to do what everybody else has done. And the punishment for not is being thrown into the fiery furnace, burned to death. Well, I, I remember this, uh, their response from a Russ Taff song, Not Gonna Bow to These Idols. Anybody remember Russ Taff? Remember kind of his rock album from, yeah, I know you do, Denise. Anybody else remember Russ Taff? He was also in the Gaither vocal van more recently. A lot of people might know him from that, Russ Taff. Anyway, okay, never mind. Enough about music. Back to Daniel. Back to these men. These, these three uh, young men brought before the king and told, this is your option, bow or die. And this is what they said in Daniel 3, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. That is awesome. Can you just hear the faith in that verse? He is able, and he will rescue us. Remember what I said? God is never under any obligation. So the next verse, look at the next verse. But even if he does not... We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. But even if he does not, it doesn't change what we believe. It doesn't change how we're going to act. It doesn't change our faith. See, their faith wasn't in faith alone. And I think that's the danger when we read that verse, according to your faith. People think, if I just have enough faith, and my faith becomes in how much faith I can have which means my faith is in me. And that's misplaced faith. These three Hebrew men did not have faith in themselves. They had faith in their God that he could rescue. Well, you know what happened. When the king heard this, he was incensed, and he ordered the furnace heated hotter than it had ever been before. So hot, in fact, that the guards that seized these three men and threw them into the furnace were killed, burned by the heat of the furnace. Even though they didn't go in, just getting close enough to it, they were killed as they threw these three Hebrew men, young men in there. Well, from there what happens is the three men, there's a fourth figure in the furnace, and the men are pulled out, the three Hebrews are pulled out of the furnace and interestingly enough, someone made the point there was only one thing that was burned. They didn't smell like smoke. They didn't smell burned. The only thing that was burned in the fire were the the ropes that bound them. They went in bound. They came out unbound. Amazing, because God did answer. But what did they say? Even if he doesn't, we're not going to change our faith. Our, change, our faith won't be affected. See, my faith is not in faith itself or in my ability to believe enough. My faith isn't even in the desired outcome. My faith, God-honoring faith, is in God and in His faithfulness. A God who, Scripture tells us, His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. A God who, the Bible tells us, works everything together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. My faith isn't in me and what I want and what I think is best. My faith is in a God who is faithful, who knows more than me, who acts in a way that I don't always understand but will ultimately be for His glory and my good. And my faith, even when I don't understand, even when it doesn't work out, is in that God. See, the, the pursuit of faith really is an ultimate 
end of the pursuit of God. Some people pursue God for what he can do for them. Maybe that's been you in your life. You needed something from God and you pursued him. You pursued him hard. You prayed more than you've ever prayed. God, oh, please give me this. Please, 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 please. And he gave it to you and then you forgot. A lot of people are like that. When they need God, he's the most important thing. But when everything's okay, they forget about him. And I think sometimes our faith, if we're honest, looks a little like that. And that's not the kind of faith that Jesus honored, I believe, in this passage. Jesus honored a faith that pursues him for who he is, not just for what he can do. And our faith should pursue him for who he is, not just for what he can do. You know, I don't know what you face today in your life, where you find yourself needing God to do maybe even the miraculous and I know there are people here that need that but there's one miracle that God has done for all of us already when he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty that we couldn't pay the debt that sin saddled us with he did for us what we could never do for ourselves when he died and rose again and he invites us to have faith in what he did as being enough and that in him we find forgiveness and hope and eternal life. And for some of you here, that's the first step of faith you need to take, the first thing you need to believe, not as intellectual ascent that Jesus lived a couple thousand years ago and was born on Christmas and died on Good Friday and rose on Easter. No, not facts, but, but a faith that persists and a faith that believes and a faith that acts as if that's true above all else that you need a savior and Jesus is that savior in a few minutes we're going to have our time of response and if you want to today commit your life to Jesus as savior and Lord I would love the opportunity to talk with you and pray with you know how you can get that set that you can take that first step of faith I know for some of the others of you here there's there's different things you've already made that decision but you're facing something and, and your faith is being tested you may be asking God for something huge. Maybe there's there's healing or restoration. You know, we believe in a God that is is called the Great Physician because He heals physical ailments. We believe in a God that is is said to uh, release captives, maybe to addiction or other things. A God who restores relationships, maybe broken marriages or or broken relationships between parents and children. You, maybe in some of that is you. You're believing God for some things. I want you to be encouraged today that God honors faith but it, but you can also recognize that in pursuing God even if he doesn't do what you hope he does he and he alone is worth it just in himself and maybe today your faith is okay God I just want you I just want you I just want to know you're here just like the three Hebrew young men said even if you don't do what I'm asking God that doesn't change what I feel. It doesn't change what I believe. That doesn't change how I'm going to act. Maybe today that's the kind of faith you need to affirm to God. And if you need to come and kneel at the altar or come and pray with me, I'd, I'd welcome that opportunity. As our musicians come and we have our, our song of response, I'm going to invite you to respond in the way that maybe God is prompting your heart to respond in faith. 
to a God if he does nothing else for you has already done more than you deserve through Jesus by the cross and the resurrection and yet we can still call to him and ask him to have mercy on us and know that he can and he will but even if he doesn't even if he doesn't we still believe 